We hear a lot about dreams in our reading for today from Matthew. A few weeks ago, I had a dream that I don't think came from an angel. Uh, I was in my office holding a staff meeting with Heather and Tiffany, and their faces were very grave, very serious, and I suddenly said, okay, what? What's going on? And Heather very seriously said, look at what you are drinking. This is not okay. And I looked down in my cup, in my dream, and I'm holding a small styrofoam cup filled with Diet Pepsi and half and half (laughs) with a little bendy straw. And Heather said, this is not normal. You have to stop doing this. So they had called an emergency intervention, apparently, in my dream, in my dream. Some dreams don't come with divine messages, or maybe I should take that as some kind of a message, I don't know. We hear dreams of a different sort in our readings for today. Um, This past Christmas Eve, on Tuesday evening, at least one of you asked me if I was ready for Christmas, remembering that I had mentioned in my sermon last week that I was not by any stretch of the imagination, ready. Well, for your information, yes, by Christmas Eve, I was ready. The presents were in hand and wrapped. The stockings were stuffed. The house was not clean. But that's because we were having Christmas Day at the in-laws, thank God. On Christmas morning, I was grateful to not be in the same position as the husband of Reverend Sherry Blackman, the author of our Advent devotional. Haven't you loved that devotional? The straw for the manger. It's been fantastic. Well, Blackman's final entry is for Christmas Day, and it reflects on a Christmas morning years ago on which her husband forgot to fill her stocking. Utter horror contorted my daughter's faces, she writes. They never forgot the Christmas when I was forgotten, the one who had been busy for weeks doing all of the baking, cooking, decorating, shopping, planning, wrapping, and sending of Christmas cards. Yikes. As I said, I was happy to not be in that husband's position. I had not forgotten. I'm not saying that I had lots of time to spare. There was definitely a late-night run to the store on December 23rd, at which my shopping cart was struck by another shopping cart. (laughs) And it happened in the toy section, of course. As it turns out, Walmart is a good place to avoid that late in the season, especially the toy aisle. I was delighted to find, however, that when the other shopping cart collided with mine, there were no dirty looks exchanged, no dirty words either. We collided, not because we were competing to get the last, I don't know, what's even the toy to get this year? Is Tickle Me Elmo still a thing? No. We collided by complete accident because we were both parents in the same boat. Our eyes were glazing, fixed on the picked-through walls of toys, and our sleep-deprived, stressed-out minds absently forgot we were among the masses, swimming in the same sea of vague panic. Our carts bumped, lightly, I might add, but it was enough to jolt us out of our days. And we immediately apologized to each other. She said, I guess that's what we get for coming to Walmart on December 23rd. And I said, if that's the worst thing that happens to us here, I think we're going to be all right. (laughs) It was a deeply human moment at Walmart, a moment of solidarity and connection. It helped me remember to look up 
and look, yeah, look up, among other things, and look in the eyes of the people I was passing. It reminded me that every single person, all of us, we're each going through our own things. You've got your stuff, I've got mine. It might not be the same stuff, but the way that it makes us feel, whether it stresses us out, wears us down, or lifts our hearts, that common feeling is what gives us common ground. All it takes is a moment to look at another person's eyes, even while you're standing in the toy aisle at Walmart. It's a moment to see and to acknowledge our humanity. And this is where Sherry Blackman picks up in her final reflection in her devotional. She springs from the seemingly dire scenario of having been forgotten, her Christmas stocking empty, to some questions that cut quite a bit deeper. It's Christmas Day, she says. Whom have we forgotten? Whom have we refused to see, to acknowledge, and to serve? Which child lays his head against the hard earth with no crib for a bed? Which mother rejoices over the birth of her son or daughter with no way to protect or care for him or her? Who is cold against the night? Working with the theme of Christ's teaching in Matthew 25, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, our Advent devotional closes with a poignant question. Who in our world today is living in the conditions Jesus was born into? Where do we see and acknowledge his humanity, our humanity, in need? This morning, we're going to focus on one particular location. Jesus tells us we can meet him when we care for the least of these. He says in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And right there in the middle of all of that, he says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Though Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral city, the city of David, Bethlehem was not the home of Joseph and Mary. They were travelers from Nazareth. So they were strangers in need of welcome that holy night when Jesus was born in a stable with no crib for a bed. He would have been born homeless and without shelter that night if not for the hospitality of some resident in Bethlehem who saw that there was no room at the inn and so instead made room for them in a stable. Jesus was born a stranger in our world. He was born in need and he was needy for the very reason that he was a stranger, because his family was not from the place where he was born. But Jesus would become yet another kind of stranger early in his life. According to our reading from Matthew today, Jesus was also born on the run, under immediate threat to his life. He would become the kind of stranger we call a refugee a person who must flee their country because of persecution, war, or violence, the technical definition puts it. No sooner do we hear the Christmas story in Matthew than we get a foreshadowing of Good Friday. Matthew is teaching us that the one who would die on the cross was pursued by violence from the very beginning of his life, that God with us, Emmanuel, comes to us not in the form of almighty power, but in the form of vulnerability, a displaced God a savior who needs saving. Before the newborn Jesus can walk, 
His family must run from Herod's reign of terror as he orders the slaughter of innocents in an attempt to put an end to the coming reign of Christ before it begins. Why is this part of the Christmas story? Before we dive too deeply into this, I think it's time for another St. Nicholas story. We got one of these on Christmas Eve, if you were with us. A Santa story you might not know. As you know, our beloved jolly mascot of the Christmas season is based on an ancient saint of the church, St. Nicholas, who was Bishop of Mira, that's modern-day Turkey. And according to legend, St. Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea in 325 when the ancient church wrote what we now have as the Nicene Creed which affirms the doctrine of the incarnation in classic terms, that Jesus is true God from true God, and that for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. And this came as a response to the teaching of Arius, who was teaching what we now call heresy, that God did not become truly human in Jesus. Now, the story goes that St. Nicholas was so committed what becomes the reason for the Christmas season, to, to the incarnation, that when he ran into Arius at the Council of Nicaea, he punched him in the face. <laughs> there is an icon of this. If you have your phones out, this would be the one time I'll encourage you to look at your phone during the sermon. You can Google this. St. Nicholas punches Arius in the face. It's, it's immortalized as an icon. So picture that next time you see Santa, an ardent defender of orthodoxy who punches heretics in the face when they compromise the doctrine of the incarnation. <laughs> this is what Christmas is all about. So why the slaughter of the innocents and the fleeing of the Holy Family as part of the Christmas story? Because Christmas is about the incarnation. And this is the world Jesus came to save. God with us, Emmanuel, is truly with us in Jesus. And if he is truly with us, he has to fully enter the world in which we live. And this is the world in which we live, marked with violence. The story of the Holy Family as refugees on the run, the story that echoes with Rachel's weeping for her children who are no more. That's the Christmas story, and it's the story of our world. The one we meet in the least of these truly became one of the least of these in order to save this world from its sinful insistence on making yet more human beings least of these. According to our reading from Hebrews, Jesus became like us, his brothers and sisters, in every way, so that he could help us from where we are, since he himself experienced the same suffering. He became like us in every way, so that by his suffering and death, he could set us free from those, set free those who were held in slavery all the days of their lives by the fear of death. The horrors of our reading today are part of the Christmas story because this is the way Jesus saves us from fear. The way he says to us, as those angels once said to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, do not be afraid. We were reminded last week that these were the first words most people had to hear when they heard news of the first Christmas, do not be afraid. And that is because the birth of Jesus can produce real fear. When Herod first heard the news from visiting Magi, that the king of the Jews had been born, Herod, and all Jerusalem with him, 
were afraid. He feared for his throne. He feared what the Romans would do. He saw this newborn baby, this new life, as a threat. And his concept of power was so fragile, so insecure, that the only way he could imagine to protect it was to slaughter children. But that's the world we live in. Herod was not the first ruler in human history to devise this strategy of mass murder to protect power, nor would he be the last. Scripture tells us that over a thousand years before Christ was born, Pharaoh once feared the Israelites, who were then living as strangers, resident aliens in the land of Egypt. He would feared that they'd become too numerous to control. And so he, like Herod, ordered the killing of every baby boy. Human history has not changed in the last 2,000 years either. The genocides of the 20th century in Germany, Cambodia, Rwanda, to name a few, follow the same pattern. And wherever, whenever, the desire for power or the fear for loss of power takes the form of mass violence, we find another recurring character traveling through the pages of human history. The people whose only hope for survival is to flee to leave their homes behind and search for a refuge in another land. We meet the refugees. We are seeing this history unfold before our eyes today. By the end of 2018, a record 70.8 million people worldwide were refugees. Did you know that? For scale, the population of New York City is only 8.7 million people. 70.8 million people are refugees in the world today. According to the UN Refugee Agency, one in every 108 people globally is either an asylum seeker, displaced within their own country, or a refugee. One in every 108. Millions are fleeing their homes in Central African Republic and South Sudan, in Iraq and Syria. This is what we're seeing along our southern border by the end of this year. By the end of 2019, more than half a million people will have been displaced from their homes in Central America as a result of violence by organized crime. Jesus, God with us, fully enters this history because this is our history. This is our world. This is our humanity. This is the position Joseph and Mary find themselves in with their baby Jesus as they flee Herod's infant-killing death squads. Leaving the land of their ancestors, they look for freedom from terror in the one place their ancestors once knew as a house of bondage, Egypt. The way Jesus will bring this redemption, this world out of its slavery to fear, out of our Egypt, is by entering our Egypt fully entering the place of our sin in order to redeem us from it, bringing us out of Egypt with him. He became like us in every way to save us from where we are. As our Advent devotional came to an end on Christmas Day, I picked up another devotional I've had on my shelf for a few years now. It's put together by an English poet named Malcolm Geit called Waiting on the World, a poem a day for Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. And so for each day, he's got a poem, as you discern from the title, either one that he's written or written by somebody else, and then he's got this great commentary. It's a fantastic devotional. And for December 28th, he's got a poem that he's written 
called refugee, and I'd like to share it with you. We think of him as safe beneath the steeple or cozy in a crib beside the font, but he is with a million displaced people on the long road of weariness and want. For even as we sing our final carol, his family is up and on that road, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel, glancing behind and shouldering their load. Whilst Herod rages still from his dark tower, Christ clings to Mary, fingers tightly curled. The lambs are slaughtered by the men of power, and death squads spread their curse around the world. But every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the Lamb upon the throne. Our God is a refugee in this world today, walking among the more than 70 million displaced people in need of welcome, just as much as he's among the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the naked, and the imprisoned. It is in welcoming the strangers that we welcome Christmas, For as our incarnate Lord teaches us, as you did it to the least of these, my family, you did it to me. Now, something you should know is that last year, when Morristown saw the largest ice raid to date in American history, when more than 90 immigrants, strangers in this land, were detained, the church in our community rose to the occasion. And our church was part of that. St. Patrick Catholic Church in Morristown welcomed the families of those who were detained, declaring itself a sanctuary. And as word spread of the immediate need faced by these families, by these children who finished a school day and suddenly had no one to pick them up, by these husbands and wives who weren't sure if they'd ever see their spouses again, Our congregation joined countless others in answering the call and without hesitation. Much like Joseph, who had a dream in the night and then was up with his son and wife fleeing to Egypt that very night, I didn't have to wait more than a moment after sending out word for need when the help started rolling in from this congregation. Anonymous donations were made. Immediately, the same day, people were downstairs in our kitchen doing what we do best, making food. Comfort food. And we served Christ those days. Differences of denomination were put aside to answer the call. Differences of politics were put aside. We put it all aside in order to be Christians, in order to welcome Christmas, in order to be the church. We are a Matthew 25 church. Thanks be to God for that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.